Many times God blesses us greatly in preparation for an upcoming trial. And when we focus on the problem and we forget about God, we begin to fear. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Genesis 33, Genesis 33, we're going to continue in the life of Jacob. Um, you know, studying biography is very instructive. You see real people who face uh, trials, troubles, and, and triumphs just like we do today. You, uh, it's amazing what you can learn just by observing. When you observe people's choices and you see their consequences, I've long been a fan of going to high school class reunions just so you can see the trajectory of people's decision making. You know, what is 30 and 40 and 45 and 50 years, you can see the outcome sometimes of the choices they make. So Jacob is a very interesting character. Uh, he's so much like us, sometimes he's nauseatingly self-centered just like us, and sometimes he's very godly, he's a very complex character. He's a grandson of Abraham. As you recall, God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, threw Haran into Canaan, gave him three promises. Number one, he said, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, which, of course, is the present-day land of Israel. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky or sand on the seashore. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Quite a series of promises. And God promised that to Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, and to Jacob. But unfortunately, Jacob didn't trust God to give him the blessing. He decided to conspire with his mother, lie to his father, and steal the blessing from his twin brother Esau. So Esau threatens to kill him, and Jacob flees 500 miles north to his mother's family in the region of Haran. And while he's there, he marries his uncle's daughters, both of them within eight days, sisters and begins a large and, quite frankly, a very dysfunctional family. If you think you have a dysfunctional family, study the Jacob's family, and it will make yours look really normal. So family jealousy erupts. Father-in-law gets jealous. God is blessing Jacob. God tells Jacob, you need to go back home to Canaan. You've been here 20 years, and it's the land of promise. And I want you to go back to Bethel in the land of Canaan. So Jacob comes back into Canaan with his four wives, 12 children that we know of. We know the 12's names. There's probably more. And he's got huge flocks and herds of sheep and cattle and goats and, and donkeys and camels. So he's been blessed enormously with material prosperity. On the journey <clears throat> back into the land, after he has a little confrontation with Laban and God protects him from Laban, God opens his eyes supernaturally and he sees a whole campsite of angels camping next to him. Now that should give you comfort if you ever have gone camping and sometimes you wonder who those people next door are. They're a little different. <clears throat> well, these were angels right next to him. So Jacob had reassurance that God was with him. So he calls that place Mahanaim, or means double camp or twin camp. His camp and God's camp right next to him. 
So God has plans for Jacob, <clears throat> just like he has plans for us. God's plans for Jacob are so mind-boggling, it's almost hard to conceive. God wants Jacob to be the leader of God's people on earth. He's going to be the founder, the titular head of what is going to turn into the nation of Israel. And when you look at Jacob presently, he's a scheming, lying, selfish con artist. I mean, you have people like this in your life. You don't trust them. I don't care if you get it in writing. I don't care if it's notarized. You still don't trust them. That's Jacob. He was looking out for number one. God wants to make him the spiritual leader of his family on earth and bring the Messiah through his children. And to do that, God is going to have to change Jacob's character in some pretty dramatic ways. And last week we saw that God and Jacob uh, go through a wrestling match all night long. God literally comes in human form, wrestles Jacob all night long, and God lets him wrestle all night long to show him how stubborn he really is. And God touches his hip and dislocates it, and Jacob still won't quit. He hangs on to God, and he says, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. God blesses him and then changes his name. The name Jacob means heel catcher, because when he came out of the womb, he grabbed onto his twin brother's heel, or supplanter. Not necessarily a good description, but an accurate one. God changes the name from Jacob to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God and man and prevails. Now that doesn't mean that he won the match. Jacob lost the match because God touched his hip, dislocated it, and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Which reminded Jacob, who's in charge? You're not in charge. It's fascinating, I didn't think about this, but sometimes the Lord in his infinite wisdom allows us to acquire scar tissue. From our decisions, right? Not necessarily physical, but sometimes it's emotional scar tissue. And if you look back at the most meaningful times that you've had with intimacy with the Lord, almost all of them have involved troubles and trials and pain and suffering. Is that not correct? When you look back and say, when was the Lord most meaningful to me? When was I most intimate with him? Almost always, it's at periods of time of intense trouble, of intense trial, of intense struggle. So Jacob was reminded every day he walked with a limp. I don't know if it was painful or not, but he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And every day he took a step, God said, I'm in charge, Jacob, not you. Remember the wrestling match. It wasn't a dream. You're walking with a limp. So when we look back at the scar tissue we acquired, sometimes through our own foolishness and sometimes through someone else's foolishness, those should be reminders to us of the faithfulness of God, of the times that he has literally bailed us out of deep water where we could not swim. So Jacob has seen God face to face, changed his life. Many times God blesses us greatly in preparation for an upcoming trial. Even though Jacob is obeying God, he's coming back to Canaan, he's still very much a work in progress. We're going to see Jacob today go from the heights of faith in God to groveling in fear before his brother. We are so like Jacob. You know, there are times when, you ever notice that there are sometimes it's real easy to trust God? I mean, faith comes easy. We go, Lord, you're so good. You're so trustworthy. And there are times when God allows things in your life and you go, 
Me? Trust you after that? Really? You're kidding. So Jacob's going to make a whole series of decisions today, and it has much to instruct us. So let's pick up the narrative. Chapter 32, verse 30. If you go to Genesis 32, verse 30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Here's the principle. When we forget God, we begin to fear. When we forget God, we begin to fear. Remember that the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. Remember that the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. So Jacob has probably been fearing this day for 20 years. Ever since he left Canaan, fleeing from his brother. Sooner or later, he knew that God had told him, you're going to go back to Canaan. And he knew he was going to have to face his brother Esau, who he ripped off, literally lied to, stole from twice. So Jacob lifts up his eyes, see Esau coming, and he responds with fear, not faith. Jacob's problem is that he didn't lift up his eyes far enough. Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. Here's the question. From where shall my help come? I think it's going to come from the Social Security Department. <laughs> Except they're in a government shutdown. I think it's going to come from the Department of Defense, but I don't know if they can have all, you know. From whence shall your help come? Always a good question to ask. David answers that question in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. The good news is, is the God who watches you is on duty 24-7 and he doesn't get tired. And he doesn't take a vacation. And he's not subject to government shutdown. He is on the job 24-7 because he dwells outside space, time, matter, energy. He is the creator. And Jacob has just literally wrestled with this God face to face probably no more than half hour before this experience. He should have looked above Esau to the God he has just seen and touched. So after the wrestling match, the sun is coming up. Right after God blessed Jacob, the sun come up. Jacob crosses over the ford of the Jabbok River, and he sees Esau, and he wets his pants. He immediately becomes terrified. There's an old gospel tune. It says, the God of the mountain is still God in the valley. If you've never heard that, Linda Randall it does an absolute marvelous job with it. Jacob forgot that the God he wrestled with on the one side of the Jabbok River is also God on the other side of the Jabbok River. I mean, he literally crosses just this little creek. He crosses one side to the other. One side he wrestles God. The other side he sees Esau. One side he has faith. One side he's terrified. What happened? He forgot that the God on the one side of the Jabbok River is still God on the other side. And we do the same thing. It's easy in some circumstances to say, oh, God's watching out for him. In other circumstances, when you're in the hospital room, you get a phone call or whatever the circumstance is to remind yourself, 
The God of the mountain is still God in the valley, the valley I'm going through. The hard time, the tough time, the difficult time, the time I don't understand. He forgets God and he begins to fear Esau. He's taking his focus off God and he's focusing on Esau. He believes a couple things. Number one, he believes that Esau is angry, number one. And he believes Esau, after 20 years, is still going to kill him. Because that's what he told him. 20 years ago, his mother said, you better get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. So instead of praying for God's protection, Jacob begins to plot and scheme how to protect himself and his family. Now, this is a strategy I would not recommend you do. He puts two concubines, that'd be a first mistake, and their four children on the front line. Now, remember, they're facing Esau and they're walking forward to meet Esau. So he puts Bilhah and Zilpah up front and their four kids. Then he puts Leah and her six sons and their daughter Dinah, number two, at the very back in the very safest position, he puts his favorite wife, Rachel, and his favorite son, Joseph. Now, if you're anybody in Jacob's family, do you, have you figured out who's important? <laughs> have you figured out where you stand in the family hierarchy? Do you know who's expendable? Yeah, the ones up front, closest to Esau. No wonder in a couple of weeks when we get into the life of Joseph, you find out why his brothers can't stand him. Because Jacob, Joseph, has been playing favorites. And this favoritism fractures his family and creates an enormous amount of infighting. And he's doing the exact same thing his daddy did and the exact same thing his grandpa did. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the oldest, Isaac was the youngest, he favored Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac, daddy, had two sons, twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Isaac happened to love Esau because Esau cooked in venison, and Rebekah, mummy, loved Jacob. This is disaster, right? I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, but if, if we don't make a decision to do something different, we will probably repeat the goods and the bads that we grew up with. Without thinking about it. We'll just automatically, that's our default mode. We do what our parents did. Take it to prayer. Ask God to teach you what to stop doing and what to start doing. So the application here is pretty simple. When we forget God, we focus on the problem. And when we focus on the problem and we forget about God, we begin to fear. Soon as Jacob focused on Esau, he forgot God's promises. He forgot the fact that he'd seen the angels of the Lord a couple days before. He forgot the fact that he wrestled with God who promised to protect him. He was still limping and he still forgot. The cure here is pretty simple, but it's not easy. There is no substitute for spending daily alone time with God. There is no substitute. You cannot cheat on that. If you want the power of God, you have to have a relationship with God face-to-face, 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 alone, every day. And He will give you the power and the strength and the perspective for the battles. Because if we start trusting our own point of view, we will fear. Because we know we don't have what it takes to deal with the problems of this life. When you look around the world, the world's a mess. But you know something? Jesus Christ is still on the throne. History is not accidental. He has a direction. Everything happens for a purpose and a cause. So God's people should not fear, though the earth should shake and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea and all those other things that the Psalms talk about. Verse 3. But he himself, Jacob, passed on ahead of his family. When he says ahead of them, he's talking about his four wives and 12 children. 
And he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near his brother Esau. Verse 4. In contrast, Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. So we see Jacob here operating in both fear and in faith. And this is so us. Sometimes we operate with great faith and sometimes we're just scared to death. Jacob shows great courage when he, he's, he goes to the front of the line. He says, the buck stops with me. I'm the head of this family. I'm going to meet Esau first. My family is behind me. Very good. It's probably likely that Esau brings 400 men with him because Jacob's got a reputation for being a scheming liar. So Jacob's already said, I'm coming into the land, but Esau's not sure he can trust Jacob. Given Jacob's history, you wouldn't trust him either. You would not trust Jacob. If you were his brother, you'd come with 400 men because you don't know what this guy's going to do. He's lied to you twice. You're not really sure. Traditionally, in that culture, when you bow down seven times, that was intense respect and it was always done in the presence of a king. Right? You were doing this, this was royalty. Seven times bowing, you know, you'd walk a few steps and you'd bow and walk a few more steps and bow. So Jacob has taken no chances. He's treating Esau like a king. First of all, he knows he's guilty. He stole his birthrights, his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. And one of the consequences of guilt is fear. So Jacob is guilty. He hasn't asked forgiveness. We don't know if he's asked forgiveness of God or not, but he certainly hasn't asked forgiveness of Esau, so he is scared. Now, when Esau shows up with 400 men, he sees Jacob's unarmed. He's accompanied by four wives and 12 children, you know, young children. He knows Jacob's not a threat anymore. So the contrast here is pretty remarkable. Jacob is scared, and he bows down seven times, and Esau runs to Jacob. In that culture, it was considered highly undignified for an adult male to run for any reason. You just didn't do that unless it was wartime. It was just something you didn't do. Esau is so glad to see Jacob, he jumps off his camel, runs to Jacob, embraces him, and they weep. You talk about a family reunion. It's been 20 years with no contact. I mean, not even an email. Been no contact. And I'm sure there must have been some sorrow over 20 years of lost relationship, right? 20 years of lost relationship. I'll never forget a couple decades ago talking to a client who was in his <clears throat> 80s at the time, and I asked him about his family. And he looked at me like I had two heads, and I said, well, do you have brothers and sisters? He said, yeah. I said, when's the last time you talked to me? He says, oh, 25 years ago, and that was too frequent. I thought, well, he's pretty clear. You know, I didn't ask, then finish business that led to 25 years with no contact and that being too frequent. But these two haven't seen each other in 20 years. Reminds us of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know, it's kind of an Old Testament parallel. In Jesus' parable, the broken relationships between what? The father and the son. And here we have broken relationships between brother and brother. What's utterly fascinating to me uh, is that Esau, the godless one, the one who didn't value his birthright or his inheritance or his spiritual heritage, is the one who initiates the reconciliation between him and Jacob. 
Jacob is the son of promise, and he's the schemer. And Esau comes across in this scenario as being a pretty good guy. Really interesting. Verse 5. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, Jacob, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? He's referring to the 580 animals that he sent in five separate droves to Esau ahead of time. Remember, he took out 400 ewes and rams, 20 rams, 400 uh, female goats and their rams, 30 camels. So he's got this huge present, 580 animals, that he's sending to Esau ahead of this meeting. And he sends them in five separate sequences. And he says, I'm going to try and appease him. I'm going to try and buy his favor. When he, That's a pretty big gift, right? We talked about that last week. 580 animals, that's a lot of gift. So Esau says, when, when he talks about this great company, he says, what's the meaning of this company? He's saying, what are all these animals for? And Jacob says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse 9. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take this gift, which, I have, which has been brought to you, because God has dwelt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Here's the principle. The God of the Bible is the author of reconciliation, who loves to restore broken relationships. The God of the Bible is the author of reconciliation, who loves to restore broken relationships. So Esau comes up to Jacob. They meet, they connect, they talk, they weep, they hug, etc. And then Esau starts asking questions about this large crowd of people around Jacob. And Jacob says, God's blessed me with a large family, four wives and 12 kids that we know about probably more. Interesting, not only does Jacob bow down, he's coached all the family units about what they're supposed to do. And right on cue, they all come and bow down as well, right? I mean, they bow down before Uncle Esau. This is their uncle. This is Jacob's uh, children and his wives. And Jacob is extraordinarily subservient to Esau. Uh, he continues to refer to himself as Esau's servant and Esau as my Lord. I, I, you know, I'm trying to find a good word for it. I think it's just kind of sucking up. I'm just trying to be, it's what it appears. It's pretty servile language. You know, I'm your servant and all this other stuff. Jacob's clearly scared, right? He wants to make sure that Esau doesn't detect even a hint of any rebellion. And he wants Esau to know that he's in charge. And it's pretty clear from Esau's behavior that he wants to reconcile with Jacob. I mean, he's come up and wept on his neck and everything else. This concept of reconciliation, this is not an extensive definition, but for five words it's pretty good. I shortened it up. Reconciliation, restore friendship by resolving conflict. You can write that one down. Restore friendship by resolving conflict. Pretty easy to write down, but if you have relationships in your life, you go, 
Well, okay, Brad, that resolving conflict business is that's easier said than done. It's very true. It's very true. But that's what reconciliation is. It is a change in relationship between two or more persons from a state of enmity or anger or bitterness or warfare to a state of harmony. So you're, you're resolving conflict and moving things from a state of enmity to a state of harmony. Now, when you look at this, you're, you're obviously impressed that Esau's heart's been changed. Jacob's trying to buy his favor with his gifts, and it's pretty clear that Esau says, I don't need the gifts. I have plenty myself. God's been working on Esau's heart. It's not Jacob's gifts that have made the difference. Of course, Jacob insists that Esau accept the gift, right? Because he has plenty as well. It's interesting, both Esau and Jacob use the word plenty. Both of them said, take my gift, I have plenty. Esau says, I don't need your gift, I have plenty. In the English, they're the same word. In the Hebrew, they're not the same word. When Esau says, I have plenty, he's saying, I have much. I have much. That's the Hebrew translation for plenty that Esau uses, I have much. When Jacob says plenty, he says, I have everything. Different Hebrew word. Both translated as plenty, but I have much, do I have everything? Esau, probably at this point in time, was richer materially than his brother Jacob. But who was Jacob's greatest asset? God himself. He had an inexhaustible resource of God himself, and I think we forget that. We look at the world around and we go, I'm not very powerful, I don't have a lot of influence, I don't have a lot of money, I don't have a lot of fame, my, my physical health is a wreck, I'm getting older, blah, blah, blah. But we have God Almighty living inside us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He never runs out of gas. He never gets tired. He never wonders. You know, you never hear God saying, oops, I didn't see that coming. God is never surprised by anything. To be surprised, he would have less than 100% knowledge, and we know he's omniscient at that point. One of God's richest blessings to Jacob is right in front of him. It's peace with his brother. Reconciliation is God's great gift to us, right? Not just with each other, but reconciliation with God. It's interesting. Esau seems to have reconciled and forgiven Jacob, and Jacob insists that he take the gift. Even though Esau says, I've got plenty, Jacob practically begs Esau to take the gift. Here's why. In that culture, when you accepted a gift from someone... It indicated that you were at peace with them. When you accepted the gift, it was almost like a contractual agreement that we are now at peace. We're not at war. I've accepted your gift. So Jacob wants Esau to accept the gift so he knows that it's not just all smoke and mirrors, right? Because tears can be faked. Jacob is a pretty good faker. And people that don't trust other people don't trust other people. And, he, and Jacob doesn't trust people. So he wants to know that Esau will take the gift as proof positive that he really has accepted him. But there's some things missing. Jacob never once brings up the past. Jacob never confesses verbally to his brother that I have sinned against you by stealing dad's blessing. Or... 
cheating you out of your birthright. Jacob never specifically asked Esau to forgive him. So we have the beginning stages, I think, of reconciliation, but there's a lot of conflict resolution here that has to take place because there's not been confession of sin and forgiveness of specific sin. It's been covered up with gifts and 20 years of separation. Same thing works with us. For us to be reconciled to God, what does it take? Obviously, it takes God initiating a relationship with us through Jesus Christ taking our place on the cross, but there must be confession of sin, yes? Before there is forgiveness of sin. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Now, Jesus has already died for your sin and my sin. He's already paid for it. But for that sin to be forgiven and the blood to be applied, we have to accept God's gift of forgiveness, which means we need to agree with God about our sin. We need to call it what it is. It's sin, just like God says it is. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I am trusting in Christ's forgiveness for my sin, so I have to pay for it myself. Jacob never confesses his sin to his brother. We hope he did to God, but he never asked Esau to forgive him specifically either. It seems as though Esau really has forgiven him, though, when you look at it, right? Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said, but Jacob said to Esau, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. Doesn't that just nauseate you? Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. That's Edom in southern Canaan. Esau, outside of Canaan, but down south. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse 16, so Esau returned on that day on his way to Seir. Here's the principle. Genuine reconciliation requires transparency and truthfulness. Genuine reconciliation requires transparency and truthfulness. So Esau says, look, why don't we travel together? You're going south, I'm going south. I can provide protection for you. You're pretty vulnerable here. You got a few thousand, maybe as many as 12,000 flocks and herds. You, got, you have servants, but you don't have any soldiers. Um, if we travel together, I can provide protection. And of course, Jacob says, my Lord and your servant. And, and the, the reality is, Jacob does not need Esau's protection. Who has promised him protection? God. And what did Jacob see a couple days before? A whole camp of angels who are still with him. By the way, their angels came with you this morning. It's one of the reasons you got here in one piece, the way some of us drive, right? So God has promised Jacob protection. He's given in the name Israel, but Jacob's not behaving like God's prince. He's behaving like a pauper. He tells Esau he can't travel with him because Esau's mounted on horses and camels and they're going to travel faster than his flocks and herds and children can. And of course, the difference in pace between the two groups would, would be too great to travel together. He didn't say, Esau, can you slow down and come with me at that point? But I think even more importantly, 
When Jacob was running away from Laban last week, they were doing 30 plus miles a day. So you can't give me the business about he couldn't drive the flocks. He was driving pretty hard to get away from Laban, 300 miles in 10 days. The truth of it is, Jacob wanted to get away from Esau as fast as possible. No question about it. Now, there's probably some good reason for that, because God had told Jacob to do something that he didn't tell Esau to do. He told Jacob, I want you to go into Canaan. I want you to go to Bethel. It's intriguing that at this point, when you take a snapshot, Jacob has the beginnings of a reconciliation with Esau, but it's not based on either trust or transparency or truth. Maybe Jacob didn't quite trust Esau's goodwill. I think that speaks more about Jacob than it does Esau. Jacob's not a very trusting guy. Have you ever noticed that liars believe that everybody is lying? And cheaters believe that everybody is a cheater because they are? Jacob is talking about himself here. He doesn't trust Esau because he knows he's not trustworthy. But when you look at Esau's behavior, I mean, it looks, it really appears transparent, honorable. He appears to have forgiven Jacob from his heart. Jacob comes off as a mixture of kind of fear and faith. I mean, sometimes he trusts God and sometimes he's back to his old schemes. But right now, he out and out lies to his brother. God told Jacob to go into Canaan to Bethel. And Jacob says, I'm going to follow you down to Seir. That's Edom, down south. Not in Canaan. Esau, you go ahead and I'll follow you and I'll meet you back at your headquarters in Mount Seir. That was absolutely a lie. As a matter of fact, Jacob doesn't go there. He goes to the exact opposite direction. So this reconciliation may be on Esau's part, but Jacob lies to his brother flat to his face. Verse 17. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Here's the principle. Partial obedience is pure disobedience. You've told your children this, right? 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 Of course you have. Partial, partial obedience is pure disobedience. What you value more than God leads you away from God. What you value more than God leads you away from God. I'm going to have Rob show you a map so you can kind of get the geography of this figured out. You'll notice that the Jabbok River, the Jabbok Creek, is on the east side of the Jordan River. That is not the land of Canaan. That's ultimately where Jordan, the city, the country of Jordan is today. And Syria is north of that today. So they're on the east side of the Jordan River, at the Jabbok River. Esau is coming up from the south. Mount Seir, or Edom, same place, is in the southeast of this map, on the east side of the Dead Sea. That's where Esau lives. That's his home turf, Edom. 
Jacob has been coming down from north of there, from Damascus, and they meet at the Jabbok River. After they have this little reconciliation, Esau travels back home, down south to Mount Seir. Jacob tells him he's going to follow. Jacob goes the exact opposite direction. Jacob travels northwest to Succoth. Now, Succoth is right next to the Jordan River, but it's not in the land of Canaan yet. It's still outside of Canaan. And Jacob builds a house there, which indicates he's probably planning on permanent residence. The problem was God told Jacob, you go into the land of Canaan, and Jacob's not going into the land of Canaan. He's outside of Canaan. He's on the east side of Canaan at this point. In Genesis 31.3, God says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. By the way, his relatives are Esau and Isaac, and they're down south, and I will be with you. Well, Jacob's not in the land yet, and he's in the north. So he's got a little problem with disobedience. This was a step backward geographically and spiritually. He builds sheds for his livestock. I guess we would call them barns. Well, the word booth means succoth. In, in the Hebrew, succoth means booth. That's why they named this place that after these sheds that Jacob built for his livestock. If you build a house and you build sheds for your livestock, it's kind of like I'm setting up permanent residence here. We're not sure how long he stayed there, but the very next verse says he moved across the Jordan River, keep your eyes on that map, to Shechem, which is inside the land of Canaan. So at least now he's in Canaan. He's in northern Israel, and you can't see it on this map, but the name Shechem means shoulder, and it refers to the fact that Shechem is located right between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So they're at the base, those two mountains are only 500 yards apart, pretty close. Well, Shechem is on both mountainsides, shoulder, right? The shoulder of the mountains. So it's called Shechem, which means shoulder. This city is on major trade routes, three of them, major caravan routes. So Jacob, from a human standpoint, this was a pretty smart place to be. It's a great place to trade. It's a great place to do business. The rainfall in northern Israel is four and five times as much as in southern Israel. Have you ever been to Israel? The rainfall south of Jerusalem is pretty minimal. I mean, it's desert, especially where Isaac is down in Hebron, Beersheba, dry, dry, dry. Where he is now in Shechem, there's a lot of rainfall. You know what you get when you get rainfall? Grass, lots of pasture, free pasture. You know what that means? You can have bigger flocks. And if you have bigger flocks, you have more wealth. So it says that Jacob bought and paid for a piece of dirt up here in Shechem. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, God had already told him he was going to give him the whole place for free. Right? God says, I'm going to give you this whole land. So why did Jacob pay for some piece? Because he didn't want to wait for God to give it to him. God told him, go south. Go back to where your dad is in Beersheba and Hebron. Jacob said, the grass is better up here. This is a trade route. I can have bigger flocks, bigger herds. So I'm going to buy something here. Anytime we compromise, there's a cost. Compromise always has a cost. Now Jacob does build an altar there, and he names it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. 
And you say, well, that's good. I mean, building an altar, setting up a place of worship. The problem wasn't the altar. The problem was the altar was in the wrong place. Jacob's not even supposed to be in Shechem. He's supposed to be down south in Bethel. Have you ever told your children, birds of a feather flock together or something like that? Have you ever told your children or grandchildren, the people you hang with will, uh, will uh, influence your behavior? How many of you believe that for you? So, if we believe that for us, Jacob is now in a place where God does not want him to be. And we're going to find out next week that he is subjecting his family to influences he should never have subjected them to. Because we are all sensitive to our environment. I, I, I do find it intriguing that the motion picture industry has a series of ratings for films. Right? I don't know what they are now, but when I was a kid, X was like the stuff you couldn't see. And my parents wouldn't let us see R. And they had a trouble in some cases with PG. Are those ratings still in existence? I don't go to the flicks very often. Okay. I've often been intrigued that if it's not good for my 14-year-old, why should it be good for me? Why should I be able to tolerate filth if they can't tolerate filth? Or whatever it happens to be. Jacob thinks that the material prosperity he's going to get is worth it. But he's already disobeyed God. God told him in Genesis 31, 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Jacob compromises with God. He delays obedience, and he obeys partially. He's in the land, but he's not where God wants him to be in the land. And you know who this reminds us of? Lot. How many of you remember Lot and Abraham? Lot is Abraham's nephew. Abraham brought his nephew Lot with him when he immigrated from, into Canaan from Haran over a century ago. It's over 100 years ago. God blesses Lot and Abraham with these huge flocks and herds. And as a matter of fact, they're so big that the land can't sustain them. There's not enough rainfall for the grass. There's too many herds and flocks for the, for the rainfall and the grass, so they have to separate. They have to literally live in different parts of the country. And Abraham says, Abram says, Lot, wherever you want to go, go, and I will take whatever's left over. You choose where you want to pasture your flock, and I'll take whatever. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. So, you know, if you're Lot, who you owe your livelihood to Uncle Abraham because he brought you into the land, right, taught you how to ranch, you would say, Uncle Abraham, um, why don't you choose and... and I'll go with whatever you recommend. Lot doesn't do that. Uh, Lot looks and he looks around selfishly to where the very richest pastures in the whole region are. And Rob's going to show you a map of Abraham and Lot's settlement in Canaan. You're going to notice that the very best pasture land at this point was located to the south and east side of the Jordan River Valley by the present day Dead Sea. Now, if you've been down there now, it looks like a moonscape. I mean, there's nothing that grows, right? That was after God judged it with fire and brimstone. We don't know if it was a volcano or not. But before this period of time, this was some of the richest farmland in the entire region of Canaan. But 
there's a fly in the ointment. This really, really rich farmland is close to where? Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is a problem because Sodom and Gomorrah are exceedingly wicked in God's sight. Lot didn't pray for wisdom. Remember we talked, you can pray for protection, but you should also pray for direction. Remember we talked last week, pray first, right? Before you act, right? Just, just the thought, right? Lot didn't do that. He didn't ask Uncle Abraham for advice regarding this decision. He didn't take into account the spiritual environment that he was moving himself and his family into. He was looking for material wealth. And he got it. Abraham stayed north in Hebron. You can see where Abraham was pasturing. The land is a lot drier there. It's a lot less fertile. And after Lot leaves and goes to Sodom, God appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you fruitful. God is not limited by low rainfall for blessing. By the way, your circumstances do not limit his blessing either. So Genesis records that Lot moves down to Sodom where all the wealth is. And first he camps outside of Sodom. Later on, it records that he's moved into the city. And last of all, it records that he became an elder or a city councilman. He became a leader of this wicked city. And the effects on Lot and his family are disastrous. Lot's relationship with God decayed. His wife and his children fully bought into the wicked morality of this city. Matter of fact, it was so bad. When God destroyed the city, God sent two angels to rescue Lot. It said they had to take Lot by the hand and his wife and his daughters and literally drag them out of the city because they wouldn't leave. Now that's comfortable with sin. God says, I've got to drag you out of this city because I'm going to blow this thing with a volcano or whatever it was, probably an earthquake and a volcano combination. The whole thing is probably, as near as we know, underneath the Dead Sea somewhere. But they didn't want to leave. Lot valued material wealth more than spiritual health. Show me the money. Back in the day, 1970, this kind of tells you how old I am, there's an old band called the Jay Giles Band, and their signature song was, First I Look at the Purse. That's a lot. First I Look at the Purse. His love of money led him away from God and led him into a whole series of compromises, spiritual compromises. Compounded over time, small disobediences produce great disaster. By the way, there is no such thing as a small disobedience. Lot's wife died just outside of Sodom. His two daughters got him drunk and committed incest with their father to produce a family heir. That's how the city influenced their moral boundaries. Small habits compound over time, aggregate into major outcomes. It's like a little leak in a dam. It grows and grows and grows until the whole dam swept away. Jacob is falling into the same pattern of moral compromise that Lot did. God had already told him, go to Bethel, where you've made a vow 20 years before, and Jacob has only partially obeyed God. He, did, he entered the land, but he didn't go where God called him to go. He stayed in northern Israel. I don't think he wanted to go south for lots of reasons. Number one, Esau was down there. He didn't want to deal with Esau. 
Number two, have you ever thought that maybe, I, I, I find this intriguing, that Jacob is back in the land and he won't travel south to see his dad and mom. That's interesting. Now, he had a bad deal. I mean, he conspired with his mom to lie to his dad. So he's got some guilt with him and dad. He lied to his dad's face. I don't know whether he's not willing to ask for forgiveness. Maybe he just doesn't want to fess up. Maybe he just wants the best pasture land and decide to obey God's command because there's more money to be made in northern Israel. At any rate, he's valuing something more than God. And anything you value more than God will always lead you away from God. We talked about temptation this morning, Pastor Roger. If you didn't hear that sermon, you better go at 11 o'clock. So the application for us is pretty obvious. The destructive power of small or partial obedience is vastly underestimated. Uh, years ago, there was a senator from Illinois, late senator, called Everett Dirksen. And he had a famous line. He described the United States federal budget with these words. He said, you know, when you're putting a federal budget together, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. A little sin here, a little sin there, pretty soon you're talking about a real disaster. Now the truth is, there are no little sins. All sin is abhorrent to God. We lie to ourselves if we think that we can compromise spiritually. And it won't matter. It will matter. That's like saying, well, I can tolerate a little cancer. I can tolerate a small rattlesnake in my sleeping bag with me just as long as it doesn't get too big. No, small rattlesnakes, same as big ones. Cancer tends to grow, not stay in its own boundary. Sin is not static. Sin is dynamic. A little sin never stays small. It always grows until it takes over our life. Every moral decision is directional because every choice has some kind of consequence. You know, it's interesting. Uh, how many of you like fast food? You should. They spend billions of dollars a year for trying to figure out how to do fat, sugar, and sweet. I mean, fat, salt, and, and sugar. We know the taste buds crave that, and they spend millions and mil hundreds of millions trying to figure out how to do it a french fry to make sure that you will crave it. Crunchy on the outside, smooth on the inside, just about the aftertaste has to be right. They spend millions of dollars trying to put the right amount of fizz in your soft drink. Just the right amount. Too much, you won't like it. Too little, you won't like it. So they, 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 they know how to get our craving machine working. Fast food's largely unhealthy. But you know, when I have a meal, it doesn't seem to produce any negative effects. I can have fast food and there's no, doesn't seem consequences. I used to smoke back in the day and um, having a cigarette, Man, that was good. It didn't seem to have any ill effect at all. Neglecting time alone with God. Nah, you know, doesn't seem to matter. I still got out of bed and still carried on with the day. Neglecting your exercise for today doesn't have any terrible consequences right now, correct? But do they matter? Do they count? Of course they do. 
Anything done daily or neglected daily over time compounds into really, really bad outcomes. And Jacob has made an implicit trade. He wants the economic benefits right now, and he's willing to put obedience to God on hold to get them. He has no idea the price tag he's going to pay for that compromise. He's going to discover that material wealth is an awful trade in exchange for spiritual health. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be opening Genesis 34. His daughter gets raped because he's in where he's not supposed to be. His two sons massacre the entire city of Shechem. The rest of his sons join him after they killed everybody and capture every woman and child and piece of livestock and literally plunder and loot the whole town. Because he's where he's not supposed to be. Because he has compromised, he's put his family in harm's way. And he knew better. Spiritual compromise. Before Tom comes, let's review. Point one. When we forget God, we begin to fear. Remember that God on the mountain is still God in the valley. Number two. The God of the Bible is the author of reconciliation who loves to restore broken relationships. And you and I in this room who know Jesus Christ are recipients of his great love and his great grace. And there are many, many, many people in your life who need to know that. So tell them. Number three, genuine reconciliation requires transparency and truthfulness. And this is difficult. Because transparency and truthfulness is painful. It means I have to confess where I done screwed up. And lastly, partial obedience is pure disobedience. And we humans are experts at lying to ourselves about our spiritual compromises. We can give God a hundred good reasons why not fully obeying now is acceptable. It's never acceptable. We do not have the right to tell God later or I'll think about it, or I'll obey somewhat because I value something more than you. That always leads us astray and always leads us away from him instead of towards him. So read ahead chapter 34. It'll break your heart, but it's also enormously instructive to understand that we as parents and grandparents set the umbrella, set the spiritual climate for our families, and God will hold us accountable for that. Okay? I do love you. Hard lesson, but good lesson now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.